Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. Hello, lovely listeners. It has been too long. And so thank you for joining me again on Recorded Conversations. Thank you for the patience that you extended during my sabbatical season of healing, reorienting, and dealing with crises. Now, this first episode, I'm going to be honest with you, my husband kind of caught me off guard. And so there were a lot of things that were brought up that I was not expecting to talk about. And I honestly didn't want to talk about for the audience, but in, you know, the name of remaining authentic and not hiding my own shit, you're going to hear most of what was discussed. Now, some I've actually cut out and am going to place it in a little pocket for another podcast soon because there was another conversation that it we kind of expanded on in there that I think I'll eventually want you to hear, but just not for now. Just one thing I wanted to say here is this episode was full frontal for me, right? I wanted to talk about trauma and I wanted to share observations of some of the struggles and challenges my clients have been dealing with within my practice and how I've been advising them to try and help them and sharing my frustration as a relationship coach um, because it, it, you know, a lot of stuff comes up that kind of feels like it's calling me out or maybe just calling me up. There's a lot of things that confront maybe my own traumas and my own erotic intelligence along with my own emotional intelligence. And so all of that really kind of confronts me to stand forward with a total conscious and honest reflection of a mirror and hold myself accountable at the same time while I'm trying to teach others how to hold themselves accountable. Needless to say, relationship advising can be a struggle and when it calls me out or more so when it pings at instances that I can relate to, especially when men are describing challenges and struggles with with their wives. I feel like they're voicing a complaint my husband has voiced in the past. And so I really want to look at that honestly and authentically with accountability in mind, but with grace in mind as well. Grace for my clients' partners, but also grace for myself. Because again, there's so much resonance where I feel like, ooh, I know what you're talking about. I've done that. I've said that. I've been in that spot. And I have one client who's recently gone through a divorce and he's struggling with addiction and his ex is constantly keeping a record of his wrongs and throwing him back in his face whenever she gets the opportunity. Now, mind you, they have four kids that they're trying to co-parent during all of this. And she reminds me a lot of how I was when I was a young single mom and how I treated their father and I was not a nice person. And ladies... I think we're getting mean in our desires to be seen as equal to men. 
which is a frivolous fantasy if you ask me because I don't ever want to be seen as equal to a man because I'm okay with recognizing the differences. Do I want to be seen as having equal worth and value as a man? Of course. But do I want to be seen as equal stature? No. I think we're all unique. So I don't I don't need equality of likeness and aesthetics. I do want equality of worth and value and dignity. But something happened with women. And if you need to find a scapegoat to put it on, you know, go seek one out. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to understand the human nature of us women and the feminine essence. And we get foul and we get fierce and we get forceful and we get hungry for power and control. And in our quest to attain that power and control, we unfortunately have this debilitating skill, talent to cripple our men, to dehumanize them and demoralize them. And we might not even be aware of it, but I have a client who just does not want to be alive anymore because of all of the relational trauma he's experienced within his marriage and bringing that into a new relationship and seeing the same red flags that he saw with his wife and feeling inadequate, feeling insecure, feeling unable to be good enough and provide and It breaks my heart because it reminds me of all the times that I've seen those kind of felt emotions on my own husband because I've been responsible for that. You know, the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial, oh my God, really called me out too because I've shared this before. There has been instances during, you know, drunken stupors where I've put my hands on my husband And I'm not proud of that, but I've worked really hard. I went to, you know, anger management. I went to a domestic abuse course. I saw a couples therapist with my husband. I saw my own individual psychologist. We went through family therapy, right? This was something that I became aware of. And I was so aggressive and, and sometimes violent. And I didn't want to be that anymore. And so I did go and, and, and try and get the help that I wanted, but that doesn't solve the problems that the previous experiences have created. So anyway, the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial, right? Like that really, that's not new. If, if you're a woman and you're married and you're being honest, you know damn well women put their hands on their men all the time. And you don't even have to be married to do that. I've seen it with 20-year-olds. I've seen it with 30-year-olds. I've seen it with 40-year-olds. I've seen it with 60-year-olds. Women have been abusing men, and men don't say anything about it. And the way we treat them is also kind of a form of abuse, right? Dehumanizing and demoralizing our men, constantly telling them what a disappointment and a failure they are, how many times they fuck up or miss the mark or forgot something at the grocery store, forgot to make sure they included a fruit in the kid's lunch or something. We keep records of our men's wrongs. We keep records of every time they're emotional and they're vulnerable and they reveal something with us. We use it to throw it back in their faces. And that's something my husband addresses here in the podcast and kind of calls me out. We need to be mindful of that, right? We need to be mindful. Like we we find every way to justify why we treat our men the way that we do, right? I'm on my period. The kids have been driving me crazy. The economy's shitty. You know, I got into it with someone at work today or, you know, I got a flat tire, whatever it is, we'll find a reason to justify our behavior rather than just being accountable for our behavior and going, you know what, you're right, 
and, and if you don't like the right and wrong dualism, right? Because that shit doesn't matter anyway. It's not, you don't even need to acknowledge someone's rightness. You can just acknowledge that you re- realize what you did creating an experience that included pain or some kind of feeling to someone else. We need to recognize that it's not okay to... Do we do that because we're we're not physically equal to our men? And so we need to, I don't know, make up for uh, physical strength by by being emotionally and verbally stronger than our men to the point where we're backing them into corners, maybe punching them, but yelling at them and shouting at them and telling them all the ways in which they suck and they can't do anything good enough. I mean, is, is that is that what you want out of a relationship? Because what I'm finding is a lot of us are creating these scenarios and these daily practices and habits within our relationships. And that's, that's scary. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you, you pay attention to what's going on and the exterior world as it's been broadcast to us and presented and maybe scripted to us, but there's a lot of division. There's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of contempt and anger and outrage and, and trauma. There's a lot of that out there. And our homes are supposed to be safe spaces. Now, if you don't like that phrase, fine. But your home is supposed to be your sanctuary. Your home is supposed to be your sacred space. Your home is supposed to be where you can find rest and reprieve. And for too many men, and I don't, I don't want to leave women out of this. I'm not saying women are imperfect and women are horrible. But I'm just sharing my own anecdotal information based on my clientele within my practice and, and what I'm participating in and, and what I'm seeing is, is we need to start holding ourselves accountable and we need to start being more responsible with how we express our emotions. We need to be more responsible with how we express disappointment. If you are disappointed by something, there can be a way to express it without decapitation and debilitation. We don't need to be so wretched with our partners, right? We need to learn how to recognize when our emotions are surging and becoming activated. Try and see if we can't exercise a little bit of willpower and self-control and a little self-accountability, right? Because if we want to solve a problem, hitting someone or screaming at them or insulting them, that's really not a useful way to find a resolution. We want to find a responsible resolution within our relationship, an erotic resolution, And, you know, the other important thing to remember is within all of our relationship dynamics, more is caught than taught. And I say this to those of you out there that have children. You might think that they're not listening to you. You might think that they don't see how you treat each other, how you treat your your partners and your spouses. But they do. They see it and they hear it and they feel it right? There's a, there's a lot of truth behind energy filling a room, tension being so thick you can cut it with a knife. Children can sense that. Children are really good at figuring out who's not being authentic. And if you're in this relationship dynamic where, and I'm not saying every wife out there is beating her husband, I just want to throw that in, but whatever kind of dynamic that we are creating in our daily habits and our patterns, the way that we treat our partners, our children see that. And they internalize that. And that can have lasting traumatic effects for their relationship intelligence 
when they get older. So as an encouragement, just to admonish you to be aware that if you do have fights or arguments or disagreements with children in the house, please be sure that at some point they can see the whole process. If you are recognizing, oh damn, we're doing this shit, bring your kids in on it. Ask your kids to share with you what they feel when you're fighting and arguing and disagreeing. What's going through their minds? I know you may not think about it at the time. You might not even care what anyone else is feeling because you're so wrapped up in your own feeling. But your kids feel things. They feel fear and anxiety. And they can actually start internalizing their parents fighting as it being their fault because they're there, because they're alive. And so we want to be mindful Whatever we think we've got contained within our relationships, whatever we think we've got all walled up that other people can't see, remind yourself that's bullshit. It doesn't matter how hard you try and cover shit up from your kids. It doesn't matter how many lies you throw at them. They'll always figure it out. This is the one thing I used to say to the father of my oldest children. I would say they're going to figure it out on their own. They're going to put it together. They're going to see you for who you are I don't even have to say anything negative about you. You're going to show them who you are. So be careful about what you show them. And of course, you know, my ex didn't listen to me and my children do not have very good relationships with their father, but luckily my husband is around and has been for some time. And so he can kind of help fill that that missing component. But these things our children carry with us. I can still remember fights that my parents had when I was six years old hiding under the blankets in my bed, crying and praying for God to just let my parents win the lottery because they always seem to be fighting about money. And I thought if God could just bless them with all of this money, they would never fight again. And I would never worry if one of them was going to leave or if they were going to get a divorce. I mean, these are these are real feelings that I had. And I mean, I just recently got into it with my husband about a week ago. We got into a very loud disagreement. And it kept the kids up and they were scared and frightened. And they told me they were afraid that we were going to get a divorce. And we have to be mindful of the words that we choose to use on or against our partners are the words that our children will unconsciously choose to attach to their own identities and to their own feelings of self-worthiness. And so we don't want to, while also diminishing our partners, diminish our children as an unattended consequence. If you're up to listen to some kind of encouraging episode that maybe touches on that, then keep listening. And, you know, as always, I appreciate your comments and your feedback. You can find me at daniellekingstrom.com if you'd like to reach out and if you'd like to learn more about my relationship coaching practice, or if you'd be interested in being a guest on the show, or you just want to tell me I'm doing a good job, you know, whatever it is daniellekingstrom.com or you can find me on twitter at dkingstrom you can find me on tiktok at daniellekingstrom923 and you can find me on facebook daniellekingstrom or you can toss me an email if you'd like danielle.kingstrom at live.com we are here on episode 101 so as always my lovely listeners i ask you to compassionately consider the perspective of Corey Kingstrom. Enjoy the episode.
you, honey? I'm fabulous. It's been a while. It has been. When was the last time you did a podcast? I think January. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's been like five months. So there's been a lot that has happened since then. There has. Like a lot, lot that like we could create so many podcasts on. Yes. But I don't know if I want to, maybe we'll poke at some of the stuff that's happened while we're in this erotic enterprise. One of the reasons I wanted to record this is because I've been sharing with you what I've been working on and just ideas that I've been trying to work out. A lot of my own internal struggles with trying to understand trauma within relationships because of a couple that I'm working with specifically who's dealing with trauma. So it's really making me look at trauma differently. And also just kind of observing all the other trauma of other clients and friends and even ourselves. And so one of the things that I was talking to you about was kind of like the trauma of the masculine really right now and how the masculine essence is really going through kind of a traumatic endeavor. And I was talking to you about how like, you know, my lifetime, which is four decades, has been really focused on feminine energy and the feminine voice and feminine equality and making sure a woman's voice is heard and making sure a woman's desires are met, right? And it's been all about women empowerment and female advancement and female equality. And in our desire to progress in civilization as a collective, we kind of have exiled the masculine for the sake of the feminine. And so now what we're seeing is these real polarized extreme versions of masculine energy that aren't really preferable to the majority of people. But so we have incels on one end who are rejecting connection and eroticism and relationality for ideology and, I don't know, self-fulfillment through isolation and being alone, being a survivor. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have extreme religious, patriarchal, hierarchical, controlling, demanding forms of relationships that really aren't very good or beneficial for eroticism either. So, and what I'm working through right now is like a couple of different things and just trying to understand trauma in a male and trying to understand especially the fear component behind what keeps a man from expressing his emotions and what keeps a man from feeling safe and being vulnerable. And overwhelmingly, one reason that that occurs is because in our society, in our American society, vulnerability and expression of emotions and a direct request for needs is often seen as a very submissive thing to do. Uh, subservience, lowly, beta, inferior, right? Not masculine in a good way, but emasculating. To say that you have needs goes against the survival strategy of the man's man. And I was talking to you about like, you know, what this is like and how this feels and trying to understand like what goes through a man's mind when you're kind of confronted internally with 
Do I get vulnerable? Do I express my emotions? Do I say what I need? Or do you struggle with that social messaging of this is bad, this goes against our survival strategy? So, like, what is that like for you? Honestly, for me, and I think it's like this for a lot of men, mainly because I've seen TikToks about it, is generally women hold our emotions over our heads. When they get mad at us, they use it as leverage against us. What do you mean? Do you have a personal example you can share? Um. Well, when you get mad at me, you call me weak for when I'm sharing my being vulnerable. And I think that's uh, something that happens. I think the trauma with men share, not being willing to share the emotions is mainly because women use it against us. So we weaponize your emotional expressions against you. Yeah. And you make us feel bad about it. I really think that's a big thing in society is I almost think the programming that women have about how men are supposed to be is stronger than the opinion that men have. Women have the, I believe, have the perception that the man is supposed to check all these boxes. Go look at Tinder if you disagree with me. (laughs) He's supposed to be a protector and a provider and um, an ATM machine. And then a class A, top of the line, fully aware and participating father. And also a romantic lover. And also this social guru who can get along with the neighbors and the in-laws. And, yeah, there's a lot of pressure on a man. Meanwhile, a woman demands, you take me as I fucking am. Exactly. And if I decide I'm going to gain weight and not give a shit about doing my hair and fuck your house and taking care of your shit, even though you've afforded me the privilege of staying home, for instance, in a stay-at-home mom sample, and, and my traumas and my emotions, and I or I give birth to creation, therefore I'm primary... You're secondary. I'm more important. Your shit doesn't matter. Women empowerment. Go feminism. Basically. Basically. And that's what I'm seeing happen, right? You you often hear about that pendulum swing and what happens when you try and overcorrect something, right? And this has happened and has been discussed, but it's not openly discussed very often anymore because when you talk about, like, the logical reality of consequence with human nature you start to tiptoe into areas that make you go, well, would it have been better if, for instance, I've heard conversations about this, Lincoln didn't push so hard to end slavery. Would that have happened on its own? Do you know what I mean? Like, would there have been a natural evolution without a giant fucking push from a government enterprise? And with the women's rights movement, I think there was a giant push from the government enterprise to back this and propagandize it, probably for ulterior motives, but to kind of like add weighted support. And we didn't consider the unintended consequences that would occur from that, where we would have to go from support for men all the way over to support for women, and support for women means a rejection of men, instead of an integration and inclusion of both. We've always had to pick one or the other, these false dichotomies of choice. 
You can only support, if you support women, you can't support men. If you support black lives, you can't support white lives, right? There's always this false dichotomy. And so I think that's where that unintended consequence came from. And we've pushed too far away against men rather than just trying to include women with men, which I thought was the ultimate motivation. Like, we want women to be seen the way that men are seen as competent and valuable and worthy and, you know, has room for a microphone on on the podium. But instead, we've pushed too far over that. And now we've said, no ovaries, no opinion. And that has put us in this situation where ultimately when we get down to personal intimate relationships we're afraid to have conversations with each other mm-hmm. and that becomes very difficult and challenging to our interpersonal relationships and intimate relationships but it also has a significant effect on you know the extra personal relationships say social media relationships or how we engage our social world and how we engage exterior circles of connections so for you, what what do you think the solution is? What's one way we can solve this? Not on a, a collective worldwide level, but between me and you, for instance. What's something that would make you feel less emasculated by my demands and and my influences from social pressures? Honestly, I, I don't know. I've never thought about that. And maybe that's the bigger issue. Maybe that's an issue in and of itself. Because you've been tolerating things maybe you shouldn't? Well, not just that, but, like, we're told our opinion doesn't matter. Yeah. So why would I have an opinion about it? So, on a personal level, do you believe that I don't think your opinion matters? Yeah. Really? Like, always? Constantly? Yeah. That's not even in context. Well, right now, in this podcast, me including you in this conversation, you don't believe that I think your opinion matters. Ah, uh, okay. In this In this conversation, yeah. When it comes to parenting our children, no, I don't think I, my opinion matters at all. Really? Yeah. So I generally don't share my opinion about them. I just try to do what I'm told. Do you think I take that approach with the kids where I just want them to do what they're told? Yeah, sometimes. Ouch. Ouch. So, example. Today, when we were sitting, you, you, me, and Ainsley were sitting at the pool, and Ainsley asked a question. Uh-huh. I thought, first of all, I was doing looking at my own own things, trying to think about how to fix the pool. Actually, you were staring off at the field, that, but Maybe anyway. I was, but I was thinking about fixing the pool, right? Okay. I heard what she asked. I thought she was asking you, and I've been told that when a woman is talking, I'm not supposed to talk. And so if I thought she was asking you, I was waiting for you to respond, and so therefore, I'm not supposed to talk. That was my thought process. Like, I had that conversation in my head, which was why I did not respond. And so, it's little programs like that. And one of the things that drives me nuts when you say things like that is I never pay attention when a woman's talking. Okay, but there's more than one woman in this house. No, actually, there isn't. There's only one woman in this house because our daughter hasn't gone through puberty You're yet. right, but you criticize me for not listening to her either. That's okay. So female voices. Female voices. Okay. But there's more than one. Yeah, there's two and we're outnumbered because there's four male voices but in this house. But I don't house. know if you know this, but your voices are very loud. Okay, so talking about this, 
I don't want to interrupt you. Are you finished with your thought? Go ahead. So this actually came up in a social media interaction I engaged in today. Now, I've, I've had conversations with you about Jack Coleman. He's been on the podcast before. And, I, and, and when I had him on the podcast, I told him straight out, there's a lot of stuff he says that I'm always like, I'm scratching my head going, dude, you better expand on this because I don't know what you mean. And we are always pushing against each other. But so he was talking about, today he asked this question. Why is it that men seem to have such a hard time listening to what women have to say? And that had hit on some kind of like recent conversations we've had in our house, right? Where like dinner last week, I think I addressed something about this. And I had, you know, just, I was frustrated by it. So one thing that I had shared that relates to this situation is this. I'm just going to read it real quick. I've confronted men in my life, including my husband, and as recently as a few days ago. I noticed that when male voices are speaking in our home, no one else speaks. We all listen. But as soon as a female voice begins speaking, the men begin speaking, and sometimes at once. I'm curious about it, too. I have theories as to why. One reason may be the normalcy of the idea that when a man speaks, he's speaking of wisdom, but when a woman speaks, it's of complaint. Similar to the idea that children are seen and not heard, for a long time, women didn't dare speak because they were not to be heard. We've always been silenced and threatened with literal hangings and burnings called witches if we speak out of turn. And there are a lot of men who, maybe even in jest, say that the best woman is a quiet woman. I mean, there's a lot of unconscious programming here, and it requires communication and listening to figure it out and give more space to female voices. It is a learning process. I do have power in my home to fix that so long as I'm mindful of how I address it. I have to model what I want to see, so I have to address it by expressing and owning my feelings about it, and then I have to articulate my words compassionately. And I also then have to actively listen to their responses after I share my thoughts. This is very challenging for me, especially because now my adult son has moved back home, and so I have additional male voices, but I have to remember that I have to model the open communication by recognizing that too much feminine power can really demoralize a man. And so that was kind of like something that I was acknowledging about myself. And this goes back to what the Phoenix and Jean, is that what her name is? Jean Grey, the X-Men. And this, this analogy that was given to me about how completely dangerous it can be for a woman and a feminine, the feminine essence to have all of this power because she essentially has the power to destroy the world. And I mean, what does Jean Grey end up doing after acknowledging that power? Doesn't she, like, go and disappear somewhere because she sees what her potential is? She could destroy the whole universe if she wants. Anyway, what I recognize throughout all of this is if we want men to hear us or we feel like we're not being heard, women have to be conscientious about how we're addressing it. Now, I'm not saying I'm always really mindful about it because sometimes I'm a big bitch about it, right? You can agree. And so that was just something I wanted to jot down and share with someone else too because it had been kind of overlapping here in our own personal life. But it speaks to a really big issue for society in that we've gotten to a point where we say if 
you're a dude, your opinion doesn't matter. So in in our house, and granted, this is my perception, but it brings on a bigger question. In our house, I feel the women always have preferential treatment to talk. Okay. Because generally speaking, in our house, the men are quieter. Like when you, Ainsley and Lillian, want to talk, you're loud, very commanding Yeah, the voice. same when we're with my sister and her husband. Exactly. We're always dominating the conversation. Exactly. And we're talking a mile a minute. And exactly. You guys are just kind of like, yeah, what's we up, just, dude? Yeah we, yeah, we communicate through knots. Yes. I feel that's the same way what happens in, in this house. I can countless times in the last two weeks, I've been trying, I, I've tried to tell a story and I was interrupted by either you or Ainsley. And then it never got back to me. So whatever, it is what it is. So you feel that the women do not command the attention in this house, whereas I feel that the men don't. And so you kind of sharing this view with me is making me kind of like take more of us soaking in and just reflecting back and I'm thinking about how when even if I announce to everyone I'm gonna I'm gonna go right I have a client session I'm gonna record a podcast whatever leave mommy alone please go to daddy right I make this big presentation it doesn't matter and I get so frustrated and I I know that I have said things like it's oh it's because you're not being aware and it's not it's because you're not paying attention but like they have a program and maybe it's because I'm the dominant parent in the home that I'm the one with all the answers I'm the one that grants all the permission and I'm the one that can heal all the owies it's I already have that power and. I, I have to be honest, just like hearing this, I'm like, why am I bitching about how I don't have power when I literally have it all? And I've already acknowledged that about the feminine energy, right? Of course we're powerful. Jean Grey. And so now I'm sitting here going, well, why have I been questioning and doubting my power and wondering why I don't have it and feeling like I'm not heard? Analyzing and self-aware. And I'm like, okay, there's some projection in here. I probably should work out, but... It's, it, it, it is like that, and it frustrates me to no end that I have that kind of power, right? Because I'm like, I don't want it right now. I just want to, like, get lost in writing. Or I need to I need to compile the feedback for the client. And I just, and the kids just have the program, too. So anyway, so. And the, the funniest part about it is the times where I do interrupt you. Oh, my God. End of the world. It's not always like that, and you know it. <laughs> it's like that. Because other times, no. Sometimes it's like that, unless it's not. And then you come in and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I'm like, it's okay, what's up, babe? So don't do that. It's like 50 50, okay? It's 50 50. Sometimes I get bitchy, and other times I'm like, it's not a big deal. A lot of that has to do with my cycle. So just pay attention. <laughs> Always placing the blame on the man. I'm just telling you to pay attention to my cycle, so then you know. And then, you know. Yeah, but it, that's not consistent either, though. No, I'm not talking your cycle. But my consistent. cycle isn't consistent either, is no, it? Is no, it's no, not. It's, oh, it's, the woman is never consistent. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, and so consistency is often something men depend on. And women can't even get that in our goddamn cycles, 
right? So he, that that's funny <laughs> because women depend on it too. On consistency? Yeah, you expect us to be consistent. How so? That list is shit you want us to be. The provider, the protector, the exactly. ATM, the support, exactly. the help, the mind reader. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'll expect that too. You know, an expectation is really going to like be the end of us. Expectation fucks with us to no end. So, but okay, so, but should uh, here? So here's something. I Shouldn't want you to, we have expectations? Yeah. Shouldn't we have standards that we set for ourselves as guiding principles for what we will and will not tolerate for ourselves? And shouldn't we have those? Shouldn't we have standards for our partner? No, we can't have standards for other people. We so, can only have standards for ourselves. So you shouldn't have the standard that I am faithful to you and don't have sex with other, other people? No, I share with you what my standard is to be in relationship with me. And you make a decision whether or not to honor that standard or not. I can't hold you to a standard. Like, and, and I've thought about this, and I, and I actually have been writing about something like this, and I have used this as my distinction with clients, right? Especially with this couple that I've been wrestling with. Having standards versus expectations has been, like, foundational to getting them to understand eroticism. Because expectation is of the ego, and the ego is anti-erotic. But I don't want you to not have standards or principles for yourself. I just don't want you to have expectations for your partner's behaviors. Because that's like saying you can control your partner. Expectation is wrapped up in control. And I'm, I, just, I can't get on board with that. Of course I expect... Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But like I, when I even acknowledge that... I'm saying that I have this preconditioned idea that you're going to follow through and do this and this and this and, 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 and meet these demands that I have to prove your love to me. And that whole situation is just problematic for me. What I can only do is share with you, here are my standards for relationship. And we make these active choices and we commit to these axioms and, and, and have a faith in each other. I can't control you. You can't control me. So if I have an expectation, that's me presuming I can have some kind of controlled idea about what I think you're going to do for me. I'm going to have to ponder over that because that, to me, it seems like the same thing. But it's not. But it is, and I'm, okay, I'm, I'm referring back to some of our conversations and slash arguments about stuff like that, and yeah, to a certain point, I think there's some expectation in there. Maybe, or at least that's the way I perceived. I'm going to have to think about that one. I'm not saying, I, I mean, I'm on, I'm on board with you, though, on the expectation thing. Expectations set you up for failure. Well, they right. really do. And so, and with, in the realm of eroticism, expectation is the opposite of exploration. And so, if you are holding to expectations in a relationship, that is a hindrance on your ability to be open to exploring the mysteries of your relationship and the mysteries of your partner. Because expectation is like saying, I know my partner. But, oh my God, you will never know your partner. 
shut up. That's impossible. And if you are wrapped up in predictability, where's the fun in that? If you already can anticipate everything that's going to happen, if you already expect to know everything about your partner and how your partner is going to be, what is there to desire? What is there to explore? What is there to discover? What is there to be like inspired or like held in an honest for? Like and, and just be like awe-inspired, right? Because there has to be a continuation of discovery of your partner. That's, that's not what I, I guess when I think of expectation, that's not a, at all what I think about though. Okay, well, what do you think about like expectation? Expe- expectation, when I when I hear that word in regard to a relationship, I view that more like, uh, you know, what do I believe you should hold up for your end of the deal of our marriage, basically. You know, be honest with me. Be, you know, faithful to me. But if how do you ensure that happens? Can you ensure that happens? Were no, you... obviously I can't. But I would ex- I, I expect that you should do that. Okay, so I'm going to back up 13 years. You had an expectation that I was going to be faithful to you. I, I wasn't, right? So, but you had an expectation. Okay, so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reverse that. Let's say it wasn't an expectation. Let's say it was certain standards that I held... Okay. Didn't hold up that standard. But was that actually your standard? Was your standard that if you cheat on me, I'm done with you? Because that didn't happen. So but so was that your standard? At the time, it was. So what made you adjust your standard to be with someone who had already proven to you that wasn't honest with you? And but wouldn't my follow question through is, with what's that the standard? Difference? Well... What's the difference between, I mean, I can adjust expectations as well. Right. So the reason I don't like expectations is because disappointment often follows it, like 99% of the time. Breaking a standard disappointment follows that too. Right. So then I would float us into the realm of do we need either? To me, it just seems like wordplay. And maybe that's where I'm getting hung up. Okay. It's just wordplay. Well, and a lot of people need more words to help define their reality. I would differentiate between expectation and holding standards if you need to hold that there are certain fundamental requirements that you have to participate in a relationship. Other people would say I have a relationship bill of rights and I have these principles and axioms that I hold to and affirm is important to be recognized and honored to be in relationship with me. But even if you have these things written out, it doesn't guarantee they're going to be respected or they might even be violated. Or if we're holding them as rights, they might be eroded. So then what follows when you articulate these requirements, regulations, delegations for relationship? It ultimately leads you to disappointment if they're not met, right? Yeah, either one. So why not eliminate all potentiality of that disappointing feeling by not having any of those and moving into an area of just having faith in the other person by telling the other person what matters to you and what you value and just having a hope that they'll honor that 
for the sake of the continuality of the relationship. Do you know what I mean? Like, so then just get rid of all of that shit and just, how about we be direct? Like, we're entering a relationship. Do you want a babies? Yeah, I want to have babies. How many babies are you thinking? This is how many babies I'm thinking. Cool, I'm down with that. Okay. Um, are we open or are we closed? Are we monogamous or non-monogamous? Oh, we're monogamous. And I'm, I'm not okay with you, like, fucking other people. Okay, cool. Okay, how else do you define infidelity? Like, does that include, like, talking to other people? Am I allowed to be with you? But, like, maybe, I don't know, wink at another chick at a bar and that kind of inflames you and keeps everything going so we can fuck like crazy at home? Or is that a no-go? Right, we establish, like, certain understandings of what kind of behaviors are appropriate for us being in a relationship together, right? And that's all we can do is just share these things and like, here's what I want and here's what I don't want. Do you agree with that? And and then if a disagreement happens later on, then rather than holding fast to, oh, oh, you violated, it's over, you're willing to like look at the situation and be like, okay, well, I had these, rights and and axioms and principles laid out for you and and you violated it or you broke it or you you know you you, you made a mistake so how do I address it then after do I hold fast to going no that was a deal breaker or do I go but like I really want to be with you and I'm willing to work through this uh we I think you and I just define terms differently maybe so because, again, I, we, if we agree on certain terms, I think we both have the expectation that we uphold those terms. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if the terms are broken, even though we expected each other to uphold them, it doesn't necessarily mean the relationship's over. I think expectation just holds a lot of weight in the word. And so I look for something else that isn't as absolute and certain and so I, I prefer terms that are like I have hope or optimism for rather than me sitting here going, this is absolute and I know that my partner will affirm this absoluteness and there are no uncertain terms. But if my partner does, then I'm fucking done. So when you use the word standards, that's how I viewed standards. As expectations? No, the way you hold view expectations. So for instance... When you use the word expectations, I use the word standards. So what if we agree to just get rid of those words and use words like I'm hoped and not and hope and optimism? I whatever I, I I think we're on the same page. We're just just getting nitpicky about words. Um, but sometimes words matter. Yeah, they do. But we put heavier weights on different words. Mm-hmm. While you get hung up on the word expectation i guess i would get hung up on the word standard more and you know yeah obviously we can i think we're on the same page on this we just and in my page at the heading what it would say is let's get rid of both of the these ideas get rid of expectation and get rid of standard okay john you should get rid of expectation What does that mean? Please, can you expand on that, sir? I think you have certain, I believe you have certain expectations of me. Like? Um, with how I am around the house. With, with how I interact with the kids. How I 
interact with you. Did I have expectations? Yes. Oh. In fact, I've actually heard you use that word. Okay. I should expect... I, I don't remember what I specific. should expect you to act a certain way? I should expect this from you. I think it was in regards to something with the kids. Maybe it was that Ains me not feeding Ainsley. Yes. In fact, I believe you did use that word. I did use that word. I did. And I hated using it. Those types of instances, I mean, you're just as guilty as I am about having expectations. Yeah, but as we can recall, that whole exchange about that episode... I, I was very up in ego. And when you have expectation, you're up in ego. Which is why we should shun expectation, right? I'm not saying that I'm free of this dependency on it, right? Because it is a, a social program. Like, I was brought up with expectations. But I can see that expectations are problematic, I can see that they activate our ego. I can see that they give us more cause to be angry with someone we love and care about because we had a predetermined idea that something was going to happen the way that we wanted it to rather than the way that it did. Yeah. And that for me is problematic. So that's why I would say, well, get rid of these ideas and just have a hope and have an open dialogue about what it is that you want and then hope for the best. But then, so the thing I really don't like about that expectation or standard, e articulating either one, is saying like, these are the rules for relationship with me and I am not open to negotiating for nuance and context and chaos and surprise and spontaneity and unplanned and, and consequence of crises. Like, I think that eliminates too many other opportunities to actually work towards connectedness if you're locked around these fucking shackles of expectation. Because ultimately, like, this is like my focal point, like in my client workbook, is that if we're too caught up in expectation, it becomes this huge, overwhelming obstacle to exploration. And that kills desire. And that kills the ability for us to be spontaneous, but it also kills our ability to be intentional with our partners. Because I, if I don't have to be intentional, and if I don't allow myself the safety of the space to, to fantasize and have desires, then I have this predictable, expectational, boxed-in, fucking cookie-cutter, cutout branded version of a relationship that is of no service to anyone, especially eroticism. I'm on the same page with you about expectation. I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm against expectation. Yeah. It doesn't mean we don't have it. And I think, uh, I still think even a small amount of it isn't necessarily unhealthy. I mean, right? Because I kind of have an expectation when I have sex with you, it's going to be good and you're going to make <laughs> me feel good, which is why I return to it. Yeah. And I ain't wrong there. I just want to say, I ain't wrong. Ever. Those expectations well, are... Well, sometimes you are. 99% of the time, those expectations are met. Go you. <laughs> Bravo, honey. Let's celebrate you. But so, like, yeah, obviously, right? Yeah. And I'm not sitting here trying to be, like, all, like, 
I'm some mystical contemplative who's rejecting all etymological uh, juxtapositions of the, the expectation and the standard. But I think we want to be careful of like thinking we're justified in having them and demanding they be met. No. Because what did I see? Like something that related to this idea of holding expectations surfaced on this idea of like that being as crazy as thinking that you're going to express your quote unquote certain plans to God and that it's like going to come into fruition. Like, and what is, what was the, the adage was, if you want to make God laugh, share your plans with him. I saw that post. Yeah. Tweets. It was on Twitter. My, I can't remember. It's okay. It was on Twitter if you're interested at D Kingstrom. And that like really like just kind of made me giggle about like how much weight we put in being able to predict things or expect things or just assume something's going to happen. And that's not really how it goes. Yeah. So, yeah, that was fun. Can we take a pause and bartender, would you please? I'm asking you without expectation. So if you say no, I'll just get off my ass and go get it. Fair. Thank you. I appreciate you. All right. Well, another idea that I was tossing around today, if you think about the different philosophies or perspectives that people hold about love, for instance, I know there aren't just two camps, but if we reduce it down to two camps just for comparative analysis, there's realists and there's romantics. Okay. And so we're going to Say these are like opposing extremes on the spectrum of viewers of love. And so romantics value intensity. And they value that over stability. And realists value security over passion. And both, as Esther Perel says, are often disappointed because few of us can live happily at either extreme, right? That's why it's necessary to integrate that you have safety but you also have playfulness and that you have security, but you also have pleasure. So what she says is that she believes love and desire are not mutually exclusive. They don't just always take place at the same time. And in fact, security and passion are two separate fundamental human needs that spring from different motives and tend to pull us in different directions. And so that ping-pongs off her bigger idea that too much intimacy can deaden desire. Meaning if I share too much space with you, I don't fucking want you. I want to get the fuck away from you. Or I feel really fulfilled. I don't need anything more from you. Which either way has a negative effect on the sexual connectivity part. And this is a difficult area for me to advise on because so many people blend these two ideas together and don't realize that they're separate. And I am also struggling with the balance of it since you've been home more often. Does that make sense? Elaborate a little bit more. So too much intimacy, too much closeness, too much physical security and close connected touchness can actually decrease sexual desire and arousal. And it is something I am struggling with since you've been home more. And it is also a struggle to advise on, again, because going back to this idea that people think they're the same, intimacy and desire, or that they're somehow like interconnected and one is needed for the other to occur. 
And anyway, so I'm, I'm trying to like write about this because going back to the clients that I'm working with, they're kind of struggling with both components. And the struggle for me is trying to get them to understand how they're separate components. We need to see them as separate ideas. But in just my acknowledgement of my own struggle, I want to turn that to you, turn the microphone to you. Are you noticing any of that since you've been home more? Have you been noticing a struggle to, or any kind of dissonance between, like I feel like we've been really getting closer physically and intimately, but our sex isn't increasing. In fact, it might be decreasing. Yeah. No, I agree. That's one thing I struggle with. Because you have a tendency of me leaving and going to work using that against me when you're frustrated with me. Like, I get to leave whenever I want. That makes me not want to leave. But at the same time, it makes me not want to be around you. <laughs> you know, we can be a lot for each other at And times. you thought for a moment that I resented you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I still believe that to a point. Oh, I didn't qualm those fears? No. Oh. Because it's not the first time you've said it. You say that on a pretty regular basis. That you get to leave. Yeah. Yeah. And so the resentment thing, yeah, okay, you say it once, yeah, maybe, but you say it regularly, okay, there's some resentment there. Whether or not you want to call it that, that's on you, but Okay, and so I want to interject, and I think I shared this with you. Yeah. So my mom always wanted to leave mm-hmm. the fights between my dad, right? Sometimes my dad would threaten to leave. But my mom would always load us up in the car and be like, we're fucking leaving. I'm taking your kids, right? And, I mean, I duplicated that scenario in my own life. But, hold on. I just want to talk about this for a minute. But, like, that, my mom did that to my dad, and that was, like, emotional manipulation, right? And that was like, I am taking your kids and we're leaving. And my dad would just go and pull spark plugs out and be like, good luck. Go ahead. Go. Because he was like, no, you ain't leaving. And... I always wanted to run away. I always wanted to run away. I was a single mom early, but I couldn't. I had to be there for my kid. It would be selfish, right? And my mom even gave me an out at one point, more than one. God, for the first two years of Lillian's life before Julian was born, she was like, I'll take her and I'll raise her and just go. Just go be free. That's what you want. And I was like, "I that's not what the fuck I want. And I think even her threatening me doing that just made me really rigid in this idea that I cannot leave my children for anything. I cannot leave my kids. I cannot do that. I am not going to relive that event of my mom loading us up in the car and threatening to take us away every time they got into a fight. I don't want to go through that. And I, to a degree, I did that with Ian. But, like, I can't leave. I'm not going to run. But, and I think we've got to a point where I recognized your necessity in just going and getting space and distance. But it's made me jealous because I can't, because I'm like a slave to my own idea. That's not at all what I was talking about. But that's, I know, I acknowledged that earlier. I said I just wanted to speak on why I have this mindset, Corey. I, no, but I was talking about like... It's cool. I was just explaining to the listeners why I have that view and mindset. 
Thank you. Go ahead. I was referring to me going to work. I'm not talking about, yes, it gets brought up sometimes when we're fighting, but I'm talking about me going to work, me leaving the house and being out of the house. Uh Uh-huh. And so then, yeah, it makes me not want to leave. Yeah. I have a question. So, has anyone ever made you feel like an inadequate parent for leaving the house to go to work? Yes. Who? You. Okay. (laughs) I mean, in general, do you have friends or family members who questioned your decision to work outside of the home with small children? Okay. I've always been questioned for working outside of the home with small children. I came from an entire family dynamic of non-divorced parents, right? Like everybody had two parents and everybody's mom stayed home and everybody's daddy went to work. And when a mom did go to work, even when my mom would go to work, instantly, her credibility and her ability to be a good mother and raise good children was always questioned. When I went to work, when I went to college, dear God, and I worked, I was constantly questioned. What about your kids? What's going to happen to your kids? They're not going to have any time with their mom. Don't you feel like you're compromising what you should be doing? What are you pursuing? Don't you think you should just get married? You've never had your decisions questioned by everyone in your life about how it would make your children feel. I have. Always. To a degree, Ian used to make me feel like shit for working. And I'd be like, oh my god, you don't want to pay me child support, but you don't want me to put the kids in daycare. What the fuck am I supposed to do? You've never been questioned for that. And in fact... If you've ever taken your kids to work with you, you've been praised. If I would have taken my kids to work with me, I would have been asked, where's your babysitter? You can't bring your kid to work. You can't do this with your kid. Well, and I, to be fair, I've had a lot of jobs where that just hasn't been doable. No. But you also, and, and lots of dads have this. That's why take your daughter to work day was so big with daddies. Because that's okay. But if a mom brings her kid to work because she can't find daycare, she's instantly judged, ridiculed, diminished, called a horrible... You can't even get daycare. Maybe you shouldn't be working. Maybe you should have gotten married. I mean, women are questioned a lot for their decision to work or not work. I mean, we're ripped at both sides. If you work, you're questioned. If you don't work, you're questioned. If... If you're shopping at Target at 2 o'clock in the middle of the day, you're questioned. If you're sitting at home doing puzzles and teaching your kids long division, you're questioned. My point is, I know that it's from your perspective and I know you feel these things and I'm not trying to invalidate it. But like, every choice that a lot of women make is always invalidated. Not by our partners, but by the rest of society. I mean, and that's a real thing. And I don't like to defer to those instances, but I've I've participated. I've been the example of those instances. I'm aware of it. I haven't 
let it weigh me down, but I can acknowledge what I've experienced and I don't have to give it energy, but it it does add to why I feel guilty about leaving period. I have to be here for my kids. That's important. I have to model good behavior so that they're contributing members to society. Do you know Brian's phrase still sticks in my head? You know which Brian I'm talking about, right? From the military? Oh, yeah. Anyway, I remember you... He talked about this... How uh, your children need to be these positive contributing members to society. And that has been stuck in my brain forever like... I'm responsible for these humans. I need to give the universe really good humans, which means I have to sacrifice everything I fucking want in order to make sure they're good. And, I I mean, that's a diminishment of myself and my contribution to humanity. But, I mean, that's what women are up against, honestly. That's what we're all struggling with. And that's just something that a man doesn't have to deal with. Now, I'm not saying men don't deal with shit. But men do have the ability to just go fucking work and no one questions your decision to go to work. No one questions your decision to go to bar to blow off steam. No one questions your decision to go midlife crisis and buy a fucking Corvette or a Trans Am, right? But if women do something uncategorically outside of this box, of this perception that we have of women, she's questioned and diminished and judged and that sucks. But again... Last 40 years, going back to what I was talking about earlier, men are, can relate. So we can all relate to all the bullshit that we deal with. And if we're on that relatable realm level together, we should be able to talk through it. Yeah, I'll, our generation can relate to both sides. The problem is our kids' generation won't be able to. Our kids' generation won't be able to say woman or man without being fined an EFT credit, okay? Or... Not EFT, ESG credit. Because what is a woman? No one knows. So we won't talk about that. But uh, (laughs) but we should talk about it. I should make you watch that. And we should do a whole episode on it. So for the listeners, Matt Walsh did something called What is a Woman? It's like a docudrama on the Daily Wire. So you have to subscribe for it. But it was kind of incredible. And it made me reevaluate some of my psychosexual influences. Yeah, I think it would be a great podcast episode. I think it would be great to invite in other people who have also watched it. Just people who agree with it or disagree with it, but if they've actually watched it, and then to just get a diversity of feedback. So that'll be your homework assignment, sir. Okay, next weekend when it's 100 degrees, I will do that. I think after we have sex, I'll reflect on our conversation and I'll figure out what to do with my clients and how to finish what I'm writing and what to add to my client workbook and where to go for our next podcast. But I also do want to, I will be bringing on other people other than you. I know you're the adored fan favorite, but I do always appreciate you joining me because you're the best guest. I do like when you make me feel good. And I do appreciate you being authentic and telling me how you feel. So now we'll wrap this up so I can yell at him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Or apologize with kisses all over your body. We don't know. To be continued.